Welcome to the Economically Speaking Podcast, hosted by the Town of Babylon IDA CEO, Tom Dolan. Welcome. My name is Tom Dolan, CEO of the Babylon IDA, and you are listening to Episode 2 of Economically Speaking, the information podcast designed to deliver the latest economic development news in the town and surrounding area. Today's episode, we will talk about the impact of COVID-19 and highlight parts of the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan Act of 2021 that was recently made available. With that, I'd like to introduce our guest, Kyle Strober. Kyle, welcome. We hope that you can just share with us a little bit about yourself, your organization, and the work that you you play here on the island. We're Pleasure to be here, here, Tom. I can't uh, thank you enough for having us on your second episode of this podcast. My name is Kyle Strober. I'm the Executive Director of the Association for a Better Long Island. We are an economic development advocacy organization. Our mission is to protect and preserve Long Island's economic viability, not only today, but for future generations. And we do so by implementing five pillars. One is reducing energy costs. One's reducing taxes, investment in our infrastructure, responsible development here in the region, as well as maintaining a young and vibrant workforce. And we do that by advocating our elected officials, other business organizations, community activists, uh, to try to accomplish our goal. And and we've been quite successful the last few years, if I don't mind bragging, Tom. But I will say this, here at the Babylon IDA, you guys are a critical piece of our economy. You are one of the most important economic development spurs to help drive new jobs into the township, but also the region, and also the economic activity that comes with it. So we can't thank you enough as well. Thank you. And uh, again, thanks for being here today. And I just want to just to take a step back, first of all, the work you do is great, and uh, I do miss some of the in-person things that you do. You know, I've spent 20-plus years in the insurance and financial services industry, and uh, you always wanted to meet the guy who was the connector, you know, in a room, in a networking situation. And i got to tell you, it's a pleasure. You do such a great job at these events that you have as far as connecting people and making sure the introductions are happening. So I've always enjoyed watching that, and I've appreciated some of the introductions you've uh, been able oh, to make for thank, me thank also. You, yeah. Too kind. <laughs> so today, you know, we, we, we want to talk a little bit about the, you know, COVID-19 obviously has been devastating in some ways. Uh, in some ways, it's created some opportunities. I also think it's a, you know, it's given us an opportunity to learn and maybe be better and stronger as we come out of this. Um, but we want to talk a little bit about what was recently just made available, the rescue plan that was implemented a couple of weeks ago and talk about some of the things that are available here to some of the local businesses. And I know you've been putting out some information on this and maybe we can just kind of run through a couple of the things that are available yeah, right now. Absolutely. I, I, I want to first start by, by going back, you know, almost 10 years ago. It's crazy to say, but in my previous life, I was the Long Island Regional Director for now Majority Leader Senator Chuck Schumer. And my legacy in that position was Superstorm Sandy, which here in the town of Babylon is very familiar with the natural disaster because it impacted so many of your residents here on the South Shore. And when I think about my experience leading the senator's office during Superstorm Sandy versus, you know, COVID-19 pandemic, some things are similar, but some things are quite different. And the thing that's most different, the biggest difference between both disasters, because they are both disasters, economically and personally. emotionally and various other ways, is that Superstorm Sandy was a finite event. It happened in a day. The storm happened, it, inc- it inflicted incredible damage into our communities, but then started the recovery process. Here in COVID, it feels like it's continuous. It's, it, you, you don't know which way it'll turn each and every day. 
you know, right now we're at a point where we feel like we're at the, at the light at the end of the tunnel. We're going towards herd immunity. The governor just announced that 30-year-olds and above can get the uh, COVID vaccination. We're almost at 16 years old and above, and we feel like it's the end. But it's been a long road, Tom. Sure. I mean, we've been at it since over a year. I mean, it was it's March 2020. And I think that that's probably the most difficult part of this disaster is that it wasn't a finite event where you can start recovering. You felt like you were living it every day. And when you think you were getting ahead, then you might regress. And, and here we are. Sure. Um, and as you know, and as you stated, it's had a tremendous impact on our economy. It's affected downtown shops to large corporations. Businesses have been closed for 10 months or more. Uh, and now things are starting to open. Restaurants are increasing their capacity. and. and the weather's getting warmer, so people have a smile on their face again. Um, but yes, as you had mentioned, the federal government just passed a $1.9 trillion uh, COVID relief bill. And there is tons of programs that, that will be crucial in helping our mom and pop shops here in downtown Babylon, but also across the island and large scale companies as well on the road to recovery. Besides the reoccurring PPP, the Paycheck Protection Program, and the, um, the uh, injury loan program, there's two new programs that we really should be highlighting and, and make sure that we get the word out. One of them is the Restaurant Revitalization Fund. That's a $28.6 billion program where restaurants will be able to get grants of up to $10 million if you're a large restaurant group or $5 million if you're an independent group. Eligibility, you have to be a restaurant, a bar, a caterer, a brewery, a tap room. Virtually, uh, eligibility is anything within the uh, hospitality industry and allowable uses you can use it to pay for payroll and benefits your rent your mortgage your utilities your maintenance expenses that's including what it costs to build that outdoor seating area to keep you through in the colder months sure so if you are a restaurant out there uh, I seriously recommend that you look into this program the town of Avalon and the town of Avalon IDA will surely have links on, on their website if they don't already once it becomes public and you should apply because this money was put out there for places like us. And if you're not looking forward for the assistance, someone else will. So there's no harm in, in applying. It can't hurt you. And uh, in the next, in the beginning of April, the SBA will be posting the guidance and the required documents to apply for it. And I implore you to do that. That's the first program. The second program that's new to this round of funding is the Shuttered Venue Operators Grant Program. And that's a $16 billion tranche of money specifically for those who operate venues. So right here across the street in Babylon with the Argyle Theater, uh, the Paramount Theater up in Huntington, the, uh, the space in Westbury, uh, also large venues as well, they should apply. It's not just theaters, it's movie theaters, it's live performing arts organizations and operators, relevant museums, zoos, aquariums, even talent representatives or businesses that fit within this, uh, this uh, demographic. For that, uh, that eligibility, th those guidance to, to apply will also happen in the beginning of April. And that too will be listed on all your local municipality sites. But we implore you know, restaurants and theater companies and anyone who's eligible to apply because bringing that money into our region will only help our economy and, and get us quicker to an economic normalcy that we enjoyed before the pandemic. Absolutely. And uh, we know how important the arts are especially to the downtowns and what that does to the local economy. Um, but just to back up, there was, there was some criticism originally, and this goes back to the original uh, uh, bill that came out of Washington 
and it was about who was able to get those funds. And a lot of the small businesses complained that you know a lot of the larger companies had come in and taken away some of that money. So I know one of the things with the Restaurant Revitalization Fund, I'm pretty sure that no public companies can qualify for this. Is that, is that correct? That is correct. Uh, if you are a public company, a publicly traded company, you're not eligible. And on top of that, and this is a good point, Tom, that you brought up, you did your homework on this one. <laughs> There's specific amounts, I believe $2 billion under the shuttered venue operators grant and a certain amount, which I don't have in front of me, under the restaurant revitalization fund, which is earmarked specifically for businesses under 50 full-time employees. So the federal government learned in the first round of PPP last year where Ruth's Chris Steakhouse and some of the large corporate brands across the country were, were siphoning millions of dollars for these funds which really were earmarked to help local mom and pop shops. And they learned from that. Now they've earmarked specifically in the, in the legislature that's, that a large chunk has to go to your, your small businesses, which is important to know, and it's important for our listeners to know that too. Sure. Uh, another thing just to mention while you're, while you're talking about this is that you know here locally we have uh, the Farmingdale Small Business Development Center, Erica Chase, and I know they do a lot of work, and I just want to put a plug out to them because – a lot of the small businesses, they don't always have the resources on hand to sit and research this information, but uh, the Small Business Development Center will help with these types of applications with the SBA uh, loans and things like that that are available. So I just want to get that out there. Um, the Again, going to the, uh, the shuttered venue operators grant, uh, similar, but um, so they're going to prioritize this also, right, as far as uh, who would, you know, prioritize as far as 90% uh, revenue? Maybe you could just kind of touch on that a little bit. So the federal government, the, 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 let the uh, Congress and the president, they, they decided that, you know, the help needs to go to the, those most in need. I mean, that's always kind of the theory when it comes to help, is that those who aren't most in need should be in the back of the line and the most in need should be at the front. And the way they did this on the shuttered operators um, fund is that they, they made a priority schedule. So the first priority, once the application period is open, will be for 14 days. And that's for entities who suffered at, at a 90% or greater revenue loss between April 2020 and December 2020. The second priority wave will be the next consecutive 14 days. That'll open up the applications to those entities that suffered a 70% or greater revenue loss between April 2022 and December 22. And then the third wave will open it up to, the, to practically everyone else, entities that suffered a 25% or greater earned revenue loss between, you know, between one quarter of 2019 and the corresponding quarter of 2020. And, that all, and I also should note this, if you don't hear about it and you think, and you, were, you know, had over 90% or greater revenue loss and you don't apply in the first 14 days, that doesn't mean that your window's closed. Your window is always open. So you should, sure. you should apply once you find out. It's mm -hmm. just, you're not allowed to apply until a certain period for those who had less and less of a revenue loss. Sure, and I think what you've been you've been advocating for and you've been getting out is to get this message out there, which is most important that these businesses know that this is available right now. And like you're saying, you know, just keep getting that message out there, and it doesn't matter that window doesn't close, and um, they can still apply for these types of loans. Yeah, we're pounding the pavement. We want every chamber of commerce across Long Island to get this information out to their members. We want it to be as public as possible um, because, like I said, this money is allocated 
it's a finite amount of money right now, and if you don't apply for it, someone else in the country will apply for it and will get those funds. And the more money that we bring back to Long Island in this COVID relief bill, the better it is for us to get back to, like I said, economic normalcy or pre-COVID economic levels. Sure. And, uh, you know, we take a personal interest in this also in that, you know, the downtowns is where we do uh, some of the development. Uh, we did recently, you know, Lindenhurst with a tri-tech project. We have Amityville where Avalon Bay is going to be doing some work on the old Brunswick site. Um, so we've been investing in a lot of these downtowns also, and it's so important for them to uh, make it through this, and uh, we get to the other end. Um, yeah, and just to touch on those sites, I mean, that's a tremendous job. A lot of people don't understand that uh, Long Island is a housing de diverse housing option desert. For the most part, everyone's a single-family home. Uh, when the planners of Long Island, they created a suburbia like Levittown or Hicksville, and they, everyone wanted their white picket fence. But now what we're realizing is there's just a lack of diverse housing options. And what I mean by diverse, I mean not only single-family residents, but multifamily units, condos, townhouses. You know, I'm a millennial, and I'm a, I say I'm a poster child of the next generation of Long Island's um, residents. And, and when people growing up, my parents, you know, they lived in the city and they wanted to move to Long Island for their white picket fence houses. And my generation's different. We want to live in mixed-use downtowns. We want to live in walkable downtowns so we can go out uh, to a restaurant and walk home, so we can go shopping, we can walk to a park. We don't want to necessarily have the car and the, and the, and the white picket fence. Well, not at first, certainly. I mean, that's, that's one of the reasons why these initiatives that, that uh, the Babylon IDA is doing to create kind of a mixed-use development and to, to provide housing options is critical in maintaining a young and vibrant workforce. It's one of the reasons why you get companies out here is because they see a large tranche of, of young people who, who, uh, who are educated, great Long Island school system, good, ed sec you know, good higher education institutions, and they want to see that talent. And by you creating those type of options, you're in in indirectly creating that talent and also ultimately hopefully you land some more and more companies that you've already been successful doing. Sure. And also to touch upon that is, and, and another part of it is my parents. You know, they're looking to get out of their house. They're empty, they're empty nesters at this point. It's a huge nut to carry a house on Long Island, especially, a, you know, if you have three or four bedrooms and it's only the two of you. You want to maybe move into a condo, you know, or an apartment that's in sure. town. Why? Sure. Because you want to be able to drive and pick up the kids after school and watch them while, you know, me and my wife are working, yeah. <laughs> trying to pay taxes mm -hmm. and uh, be with the grandkids. They don't want to have the only option being, being to fly, to relocate to North Carolina or South Carolina or Florida. So providing these kind of uh, more economic, uh, more viable economic options for our baby boomers so they can stay in town and, and continue to be part of the family unit is wonderful. It, sure. it should, you should be applauded for that. Sure. And, and the other part of that is just to piggyback on what you're saying. We need to continue to make this an attractive place to be because someday they may want to transition and buy your parents' home. Right. And who's going to be there? Well, you know, there, there's no market if we don't create a market, you know, for the future. So uh, that's another part of this that is so important. Uh, we're seeing a tremendous amount of things happening on just in Lindenhurst and Amityville and, and kind of all over, Copeg, um, and, and we're doing a lot of different projects, but I can tell you that, you know, I am a resident of Lindenhurst, and uh, a couple of weeks ago, my son plays, one of my sons plays on the varsity football team, and I'm out, and people are all buzzing about, boy, did you see the new restaurant? Did you see, you know, but it all started with an investment made by the developer in the community, and the multiplier effect, and when you explain that originally, when we explained to people, 
you know, they couldn't see it, but now they're starting to visualize and recognize what that type of investment in the downtown has done. It, it's only going to get uh, bigger and better because, and, and, and I know we're going to talk, we want to talk about this, is the infrastructure investments that the state is doing in our mass transportation system is tremendous. I mean, the East Side Access Project, which, would, which will give direct Long Islanders direct access to Grand Central Station, it's going to be a game changer. Sure. Now, my wife, she works in the city. She works on the east side of Manhattan, and, and we live in Long Beach. But for her to go into Penn Station and get on a subway and then get to the east side of it, Manhattan and then get to our office, it's an hour and a half commute door to door. And that's assuming that there's no Long Island Railroad delays, right. and we all know <laughs> how that happens, right? Yeah. So yeah. sometimes my dinner, the, added, the environment of my dinner is dependent on how well the Long Island Railroad runs. <laughs> But uh, now that we have uh, you know, a small child and one on the way, it's more and more important for her to cut down her commute time. And what I've been saying across Long Island is that places like Babylon are gonna flourish even more because your connectivity bubble, the connectivity bubble of the city is expanding. You know, the town of Babylon, if you get on the Babylon line, Copig, you know, Amityville, uh, um, it's probably what, an hour and 20 into the city? About an hour. An yeah. hour? Okay, yeah. so it, if it's an hour into the city, Unless it's if you're on an express, too. If you're on a, well, if it's an hour into the city, but now you're going to get to the east side in an hour. Mm. So people who are thinking of, oh, you know, maybe I had to buy, you know, I had to buy in Mac, Merrick, Belmore, Wantua, Seaford, because I wanted to be a little closer in. The bubble just expanded even into Suffolk, because with, now with access to the east side, it's a reasonable commute. Right. So home values and, and the area is going to be a lot more desirable. This, play, this town more than most is going to benefit. I would put you in the same bubble as Huntington because on that sort of sphere of connectivity, you're going to be captured in what I call reasonable commute times to the city now because of these infrastructure projects. So that's a, a real game changer, and I, I, I think there needs to be more talked about it. Oftentimes when we talk about the Long Island Railroad, we talk about the headaches that it comes with. And that's fair. I mean, everybody's gone through it and everybody yeah. knows about it or everyone reads about it. But there are some positives, and, and uh, the, the project is supposed to come online at the beginning of next year. And when that happens, watch the real estate values down here. They're going to go up, I'm telling you. Yeah. No, it is. It's an asset, right? We always talk about being the, the bedroom community to the city. And um, that's going to, like you said, it's going to be a game changer, no doubt. No, no doubt. doubt. Um, the third rail, that's also part of that. That reverse commute is also something they talk about. Maybe you can kind of just. Yeah, so the third track project, uh, that's mostly in Nassau, but it does benefit all the train lines. It allows for more uh, commuting, not only into the city, but reverse commuting. Right now, there's a dark period in the morning where actually there's no reverse commuting, I think, between like 6 and 8 a.m. in the morning. So theoretically, if you're a company on Long Island or or organization like the IDA trying to attract companies to Long Island, a big uh, hindrance of that uh, or, or lack of tool in your belt is the ability to draw talent out of the city. And until the third track comes online, uh, there is that dark, that dark period of reverse commuting will continue. Now the third track will allow companies in the town of Babylon or anywhere else to start drawing people out in the city because options will be available. Train, ride, train service will be provided. In addition to that, and back to the whole connectivity of the city, the third track will reduce delays. Having a third rail, a third track, I should say, if a train goes down because of those dreaded, quote-unquote, signal problems, they can still maneuver around them. There's just more capacity on the line. Mm -hmm. So that project, just like Eastside Access, they go together. And, they, and the total package, even the second track, but that's all more sure. for Ronkonkoma, 
and in uh, Huntington, they're all important and they're all but pieces of the puddle. Although I should say, I, I, I should correct myself. I believe the second track goes through Wine Dash. <laughs> I think it's a, I think it's from uh, Farmingdale to Ronkonkoma, and that line is the Wine Dash line. So the, it does touch the northern tip side of the town. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you you take a different view. We we focus on Babylon, but again. The whole region is important to us, and these types of projects are important because we want Long Island to be successful. But maybe you could talk a little bit about some of the challenges that you see maybe that are out in front of us right now, maybe COVID-related, maybe just overall some challenges or some things that, you are, that you're working on at the AVLI. Well, some of the biggest challenges are, are, you know, educating folks, one, about the importance of economic development initiatives on Long Island. You know, it's... People understand the impact of taxes, which I can talk about for days of how we're overly taxed here, and it's probably the number one reason why companies relocate off the island. But economic development is a critical part of our economy, whether people want to admit it or not. You know, when when investment is into communities, whether to build mixed-use downtowns or to create jobs, you know, we're fighting against regions across the country to make that happen. And unfortunately, as, as Tom, you know all well, is is the packages that Florida and Ohio offer are always going to beat us. They, j- they just are. We're a high-tax, high-energy-cost region. It's a fact of life. We're not going to be able to change it. We're, we're, we're continuing to minimize its effect. But we're just not going to beat them always straight on on the numbers. But what we do have is we do have oftentimes a more talented pool of, of workforce, and we also have Long Island. It's a very desirable place to live between our beaches and our parks, our proximity to New York City. Also, our connectivity globally. I mean, New York is the capital of the world. You can pretty much get anywhere relatively quickly in a direct flight from this region. Sure. So, you know, those options play in our favor. But, but what we really struggle, or, or, or what I shouldn't say struggle, what we fight day in and day out is to keep us viable and to keep us, you know, competitive. So when Tom's out there speaking to other companies, you know, he's not, he's, not, he's not even given a second look sometimes. Now he is given a second look or he's given a priority look because he has these other tools in his belt to sure. kind of make them see why Long Island is their home or should be their home. Mm-hmm. And, and we do speak to a lot of businesses that definitely want to stay here if they're given the opportunity, you know. Um, but we do compete with that, but we also compete with young people moving, right? Uh, one of the things we talk about, um, you know, we invest in our in our young people in schools. If, if the schools want to say that it's $25,000 per pupil to educate over a 12-year, uh, you know, the, the lifespan of their education, that's a, that's a major investment. And if we lose that, that's a real loss leader. And that's where, again, it comes back to creating uh, an environment and something here for them, attractive to keep them here. Um, and and I've had people ask me, well, why don't you just attract you know a big company out here? And I try to explain to them, companies go where the talent is. So it's so important for this type of development to keep these young people here, and that will bring the jobs with it because they're going to go where the talent is. And I'm sure you've seen that. Too. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, look, you brought up schools. I'm probably not the school districts on Long Island's favorite person of the month. Uh, quite often we bump heads, and, and, and the reason why is because 
Look, they provide an essential service, and they're probably one of the main drivers of, of property values. They provide a good education. Long Islanders get good education. That's why you move to Long Island. That's why you pay high property taxes, 66% of your taxes to your sure. schools. But what oftentimes I find them is they hinder economic development, which blows my mind because we're the, reason, we're the ones who pay for their budgets. The lion's share is commercial property owners. And, and for them to weigh in against the project because they have these documents that claim there's going to be an influx of new students. Well, one, a lot of schools are at, I think, 10 or 20-year lows in enrollment. Yet their prices still go up. Their 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 tax their their request for uh, tax increases never cease, um, and you know it just like I said it blows my mind that they're coming after economic development investment, scaring them away, saying we, we don't want you here. We we, right. we, oh. we don't we don't think it's 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 helpful to the district and it will hurt our bottom line. Well, at the end of the day, the more times you scare economic investment away and companies away, the more impact and the bigger burden it's bared on the residents who, who are, are, you know, your taxpayers. Sure. Um, so that's why I, I think that in terms of education, continue, I implore them, continue to provide that quality education. But when it comes to driving economic development initiatives, leave it to the experts. Because at the end of the day, it's, it's not the developer who makes the decision on whether they want to invest. It's their financing. And if the financing doesn't see that the project is economically viable or it's too much of a risk, and that money will be shipped to other parts of the country, sure. and the project won't happen, and the increase in taxes that will be paid to the district, reducing the burden on the residents, won't happen. Agreed. That's the bottom line. Yeah, no, agreed. And, you know, with the IDA, obviously we get attacked <laughs> with, with, because of how people look. You said uh, when you started part of the ABLI, you look out to the future. It's so important to look to the future, and a lot of times with these types of projects and that type of mindset that you just spoke about, it's so reactionary, and it's not thinking about the future. Um, I've said to people, you know, take us out of the equation for a moment. Take us out of the equation, but you're still going to have expenses in schools continue to go up, and you're going to have the eroding factors that are naturally going to happen to the school. You're going to have to fix the boilers, the roof replaced, or, or the things sure. that go on to the physical plant. But where, are you gonna, where is that money going to come from in the future, right? They don't understand, and they need to, you know, we're trying to, again, that's part of what this podcast is about, to get them to take a different view of what we're doing and the community to realize that we're really the tool that's going to help them because we're taking these properties that we've talked about, and by developing these properties, we're also protecting the tax base. You know, um, we've done things where we've kept in our uh, industrial sector. Uh, you know, it's just about keeping jobs here in the building and, and incentivizing an investment in that. But again, we're protecting the tax base and we're protecting people Absolutely because otherwise the I only mean, result is to raise taxes. And yeah, oh look, you, it often hap it happens so many times that there's a lack of, of foresight or looking into the future and how these policies will end up affecting not only the current taxpayers but the future taxpayers. I mean, take for instance the New York State budget right now. The legislature wants to propose $7 billion in tax increases. That's after they received $12 billion, thanks to Senator Chuck Schumer, mm -hmm. Senator Gillibrand, and the Long Island delegation in COVID funds. There are municipalities on Long Island, for the most part, are either going to hold the line in taxes or lower it. And the state looks to raise it by $7 billion. I saw that, yeah. And, you know, I get what they're doing. They, they're raising the taxes on the wealthy and on corporate. And that's fine. I mean, you and I, Tom, 
we're never going to be called high net worth individuals. <laughs> and I'm fine with that. I'm a middle class guy. You're a middle class guy. That's right. We, I wear it as a badge of honor. But you know what's going to happen? Is these high net worth individuals have multiple homes. And if anything, they learned anything this year is they can work remotely because that's what COVID taught us, right? Absolutely. So they're going to just relocate to another state like Florida or Carolinas where there's no income tax. Right. And they can make more money. There's no estate tax. And they're going to flee. And what happens when these, these high net worth individuals who pay like 40% of the taxes on the budget flee? It's going to be us, the middle class Long Island families. Not, this, not, this, not the uh, you know, workforce in the city, not the people up rural areas upstate. It's going to be the suburbs of Long Island mm -hmm. that are going to be impacted. We're going to be the ones that are going to hold the bag down the road when the high net worth individuals who pay the lion's shares of the taxes leave the state. And it's just unfortunate that there's a lack of foresight and, and, and planning and, and, and understanding how trends are going to happen. I mean, it's, it's, sure. it's uh, something that we work on all the time. I mean, like I said, you and I are not high net worth individuals. God bless them. Mm -hmm. you know, they should pay their fair share of taxes. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is if we start driving up taxes and force, forcing some of our residents, any percentage of our residents to leave, that just bears the more of a burden on us. Agreed. <laughs> Agreed. Um, hey, so you know, we talked we about the lotto. Well, maybe we will be high. I'm net sorry. Worth. Let's play the lotto. Maybe we can be in that high net worth individual category. <laughs> <laughs> that was my dad used to have a joke. He'd tell people, he says, "I'm starting to work on that second million. You know, people <laughs> like the second million. So, well, the first one didn't go too well. So I figured I'd go to the second. You know. So <laughs> I got to use that one. Uh, so again, we have challenges here, and part of it is this process. And again, we hope you come back in the future. Uh, but it is this process of educating, right, the, the residents and the people locally, so that they have a good understanding of what we're doing and why we're doing what we're doing. And that ability to look forward a little bit is so important. Um, but you talked about, you know, some of the opportunities with the east side access and what that's going to mean uh, to Long Island. What other opportunities? What other things do you see, or maybe things that, because of COVID, that have created opportunities for us out here on the island? Well, I think that the Brookhaven National Lab, which is one of the leading research institutions not only in the country but in the world, them receiving uh, the, or being awarded, I should say, the electron, electron ion collider is going to be a game changer. It's going to establish them as a leader in research for many generations to come. Hmm. There's going to be billions of dollars investment in there, and that's going to funnel out to the whole region of Suffolk County. Awesome. So that's one that's really important. I think MacArthur Airport has a big opportunity. I mean, they are constantly improving uh, their connectivity, adding flights. They took a huge step back in COVID. I mean, who didn't in the air airline industry? But they are making tremendous strides to be uh, bigger and, and, and uh occupy more of a market share here in the region, uh, here in the tri-state area, that that's going to benefit Babylon because you're only a hop, skip, and jump from that airport. And if there are direct flights to certain parts of the country, there's no reason why certain corporations might move forward in, in making the Long Island campus because they can get, let's say, to North Fork, you know, Virginia quickly if they sure. get down there to their headquarters or, or anywhere else. So I think those two items are, are, are really important. I mean, we also touched about... Um, reducing the tax burden. And I'll also touch upon, you know, just local municipalities like the town of Avalon modernizing their processes. You know, Long Island is 
particularly at the town level, a lot of them are stuck in their ways and, and monitorizing, monetization of their procedures um, hasn't really occurred. But COVID has changed that. You know, walking into a town building and dropping off an application was normal. Now it seems dangerous because right, <laughs> sure. of the virus, yeah, right? Yeah. Like sitting in a waiting room, ha- waiting to pay your taxes, s- seems crazy, yeah. right? Yeah. So there needs. So I think as a silver lining, as many thing, as many thing, many silver linings occur during you know natural disasters. One of them will be a modernization of municipalities. You know, municipalities will shift to e-filings. You know, e-application approvals. Things going digital. Mm-hmm. I think Zoom meetings are here to stay. You certainly miss a little bit of the in-person interaction, but in terms of municipalities that are, you know, always trying to do more with less to keep their bottom line down and, and not have to impact their residents, it's just more efficient. Mm-hmm. I mean, Tom, you can get on meetings, you know, every hour on the hour for an entire day without travel time. Absolutely. Cutting out the travel time is sometimes the biggest, you know, the biggest uh, inefficient use of your of a day. So I do think Zooms are going to be here for a while. Uh, I don't particularly love them either because who likes to sit in front of a screen? Mm-hmm. Uh, I like being here talking to you. But um, I think that, that certain, certain aspects of this pandemic are going to yield uh, great benefits, particularly to economic development at the municipal levels. The improvements that you'll see across the board will just make it more efficient. Sure. And it'll be it'll be last for generation. We will never revert back to not being able to file online. Right. 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 Um, no, agreed. I, I agree with you. And uh, th- with with everything, there's always a silver lining. And I do believe, as tragic as this was, and and what it has done, you know, uh, not just here but around the country, but through it all, I do believe there is a silver lining and there is a light at the end of the tunnel. And uh, looking forward to that day, though, that's for sure. So I want to thank our guest today, Kyle Strober, Executive Director for ABLI, which is a better Long Island. Uh, Kyle, thanks for your insight. Thanks for your input. Uh, we, we really enjoy the uh, relationship that we do have with you and your organization, and um, we hope that you'll come back in the future and we can kind of maybe update everybody on some of the things that we had the opportunity to talk about today. Tom, thanks for having me on your show. Always a pleasure. I really do appreciate uh, everything that the Town of Babylon IDA does. You've been a great partner here with economic development, particularly here in this beautiful downtown Babylon, uh, but across the township, and also you've been a player on Long Island, which uh, isn't really, might not be known by everyone here on this, listening on this podcast, but Tom has really helped a lot of uh, businesses and people outside of the town lines. I, I just want to end by saying, look, you know, if anybody wants to follow us, the Association for a Better Long Island, we're at a for a Better Long Island. That's at for a Better Long Island on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, we post updates when it comes to community and also Long Island regional economic development issues. Uh, we will certainly post the links when the shuttered venue operators fund and the restaurant revitalization fund comes online. Uh, and if you have any other questions or, or comments, feel free to reach out to us. We, uh, we do engage with the community. We like to get the feedback, and uh, it helps us drive our economic initiatives. So thank you, Tom, for having us. Thank you so much for being here. Again, my name is Tom Dolan. I am the CEO of the Town of Babylon IDA. You were listening to Economically Speaking, and I was with my guest, Kyle Stroll. Thanks, Kyle. Have a good day. 
This episode of Economically Speaking was brought to you by the Town of Babylon IDA. For additional information and to find out how to stay connected, like us on our Facebook page at Town of Babylon IDA, as well as our website, BabylonIDA.org, where you can subscribe to our email listing and find links to our latest episodes and newsletters. 